When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Lit Up. This episode, we have Glory Adim. She's here because she has a new anthology out called Well Read Black Girl. It gathers incredible black women that she admires from playwrights, novelists, and activists. You'll recognize many of the names in there, like Tayari Jones and Jesmyn Ward and Morgan Jenkins. I recorded with Glory at The Wing in New York. We spoke about everything from what it's like to have unexpected, crazy success with an Instagram just by having a good idea of sharing great literature. We also talk about what it's like when you don't encounter yourself in fiction. And really, that's the theme of this book. She asked this question to all of her contributors. When did they firstly see themselves reflected in a great book? So that's a great question to ask yourself as you're listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. I can't believe it. She's finally in here and on the pod. Glory Adam, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You are otherwise known as... The well-read black girl. Yes, that is me. (laughs) So we're here because you've put together this incredible anthology and you write a beautiful introduction to it yourself and you've drawn all these women who've inspired you. But before we get into that, let's talk about what is and who is well-read and then like how is that different in your opinion to a well-read black girl? Mm, That's such a great question. I think what it means to be well-read is just to have the ability to have a cultural imagination, to really dig into books that have a sense of brilliance, a sense of belonging, and most importantly, um, just a sharpness to it. All the books that I read growing up all left a lasting impression on me. They had things that made me think and ponder and really gave me pause. So when I read William Shakespeare or when I read, you know, Anne Frank for the first time, these were books that just like sat with me and made me think about humanity, society, made me think about what it means to be a person in the world. And I think that's the idea of being well-read, to read beyond yourself and read for exploring, for knowledge, for asking the questions that may not come to you naturally. Um, And then when I think of being 
um, a well-read black girl, those same things apply. But there's also an extra layer of looking at identity and looking at the canon in a different way where... Um, to be quite frank, where whiteness isn't centered, where the black voice has the ability to shine and show its brilliance. I was thinking, you know, when I have thought myself of when I felt well-read or not, and we're in the book world, and I was at the Sydney Writers' Festival, and I know you were um, this year, and I was at a party, and there were these guys there, and I pretended to have read a Saul Bellow book. I mean, I've never read any of his work. (laughs) I'm not really interested. But I I remembered pretending I had read it and feeling like a fraud and then actually going home that night and thinking, like trying to playing that through. Like, why did I do that? It's okay. We kind of all read all books, but also I don't need to have read this dude's book that I have no, you know, particular interest in. Then when I came to your, you know, this book and these questions, just pondering like why we have we feel this pressure, and then, um, you know, and then I was thinking about whiteness, and I was like, whoa, what is it like to to not be white and have all these other images, the canon kind of pushed upon you. Right. There is this idea that there's only one way to be well read. Like you have to read um, Virginia Woolf, who I love. I love Virginia Woolf, but that wasn't necessarily who I saw as my literary foremother. I was more drawn to Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison because of the craft of their writing and the prose. But to be quite honest, because they looked like me, there is this misconception that there's only one way to have... um, relevance in the world. There's only one way for a writer to be uh, prominent. So of course, we hear a lot about Ernest Hemingway and The Great Gatsby. But I would challenge that Toni Morrison's jazz has just as much power and, you know, challenges the the idea of cultural identity. Um, I, I think it's really interesting because I didn't really know how powerful well-read black world would be until I started talking to other people about this, about how they didn't see themselves. And society is constantly saying, like, this is the only way where you can be well-read. This is the, the this is the requirement of a literary education. And what I'm trying to do is really challenge that notion and illustrate that there's a new wave of authors. And also there's a, a whole other canon that hasn't been explored or challenged um, to, see, to be seen as um, what is the word? Just powerful, you know? I, th- I think the books that we read in schools, in a college, in academia are just like lacking of like people of color. Their voices need to be heard. There doesn't only need to be the, um, oh man, I'm trying to think of who the, the authors are. Like Charles Dickens yeah, or something. Yeah, you know, or, like it doesn't always have to be these like same voices we hear over and over again of old white men. That is not, it's not sufficient anymore. You know, maybe like 20 years ago, 40 years ago, that's all we had. And which is actually not true. That's not all we had. But that is the idea of that's all we had. But I, we have to push past that and so and show that there are more stories that need to be heard and read. And read um, not only for reflection, but just for craft as well. Because this, the stories that 
are really powerful are different and diverse and really versatile you know and also exquisitely written oh yeah you know like we need to study those prose for their sentence structure exactly for the syntax and for the metaphors just all of that like it illustrates the beauty of writing um that like i think of you know, I read uh, Chinua Achebe when I was in college and I was just completely blown away by that. And before then, um, I had never really like studied an African writer, you know? So there's that too, that like looking beyond beyond a Western perspective of what, um, who are the like literary greats and giants are. I want to go back because I read that your partner gave you a T-shirt. Yes, he did. And actually, it's, I was thinking about the power of wearing your beliefs and values. And we are kind of in a moment where sometimes it feels like, you know, we're sloganing everything. Right. But I want to know about how specifically powerful that was and what a surprise well, yes, my partner Opio gave me this incredible T-shirt for my 31st birthday, and it had those words, well-read black girl, written on them. And what happened was it became a symbol of just conversation. I would be sitting on the subway, I would be in the grocery store, and other black women would approach me and ask me the question, first, where'd you get that shirt from? <laughs> and then it would go into a long conversation and just about our favorite authors and you know what we were reading at the time. And it wasn't always necessarily a book by a, um, a black author, but it just became just a conversation like, you know, what's on your bookshelf? When was the last time you went to the library? Are you part of a book club? And it was very organic and seamless. And it had a, a feeling of just, um, oh man, just like friendship. You know, when you like you're in high school and you like sit next to someone in the cafeteria and you like instantly just bond and have you find something in common with one another and you're like, okay, we, we're like fast friends. And that shirt became that like fast friend symbol. Like if we read the same things, that maybe that means we have the same interest. Maybe that means we have the same ideology. Maybe that means that we have more than common than we actually know or realize, but it's simply the book is like the beginning. It's the opening of the conversation. And there is such power in that when you see... Um, the likeness, you know, and and also it moves into a space where you can have discourse with another person too. So you can talk about your political beliefs. You can talk about the things you disagree about and how to have a like respectful conversation. Um, and right now in the political climate and everything that's happening, it is so important. And you have to be very clear that, you know, the personal is political. That Audre Lorde quote just like stands with me because Whatever you're saying out in the world, whether you're saying it on social media or you have you're wearing something on your shirt, it is a statement. It is saying like this is who I am, this is my identity, and it has power. Um, so yeah, initially I did not know that the shirt would bring forth all these wonderful conversations and build all these new connections. But once it did, I just like I really held on to that, and I wanted to recreate that um, again and again and again. Also, it reminded me of um, college, too. Like, like going to Howard University completely changed my perspective on life um, because there was a proudness and just an intensity I felt walking on that campus. I, like, 
like I never questioned myself when I was a student at Howard University in a way that I didn't even know could exist until I went there. Because the, the, going to Howard and this is a, suddenly like a PSA for my university, <laughs> for my alma mater, it it is a life changing experience because you like I'm black and I'm proud. It is there. Like that is like the essence of the university. Um, and I, I like to say that's like where. I really developed my ethos for Well-Read Black Girl because in it, I just never second-guessed that. I was like, okay, like this is who I am and this is what I love and I'm proud of it. Um, yeah, so, and you know, my partner also went to Howard. So in this shirt, there's also a love story because he like saw that in me and like really like brought it out. So I'm really proud of it. <laughs> and your dad went to Howard too. Yes, yes. So yes. what was it like having... And my brother. Oh, yeah, like... <laughs> Did your brother tell you guys stories about his time there? Oh, yeah. Was it a place that you always imagined going? Yeah, yeah. My dad, um, I was actually like, maybe I was like one. I have a photo of my dad and my mom and my my mom's like carrying me and we're at my dad's uh, graduation. Um, he studied architecture at Howard, Howard University and it, it it's just part of my lineage and my legacy. I think of all the women um, that I admire and love who came through the university, Toni Morrison, Felicia Rashad. Um, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Like, to be part of that, I, there's, I'm, I'm so immensely proud. Um, and, and it's oh, not until you walk away from it and you enter the world in a different way that you like realize how special it is. And it's a safe haven for um, black scholars and creatives to really just like throw things at the wall and experiment and not feel the restrictions that society can sometimes put on you. And, you know, quote unquote, what a black person should be like or act like that does not in my experience, that did not exist at Howard. There was a level of just openness and um, a warmth that was constantly there. Like I always felt validated and um, I always felt like myself. Um, so yeah, there, it's, it's Howard is a really special place and I encourage you know, every young person who's listening, every young black person listening that they should attend and be part of that. And we also have our legendary homecomings. So there's that too. <laughs> you can have like a, a wonderful experience academically, socially, it, it changes your life. Well, it's really interesting to have had that really potent experience and then almost be recreating that for for women who didn't get to go to Howard and mm -hmm. probably won't, you know, if they're older now. But it's amazing how, yeah, you have created this powerful community. And I'd love to go back. So you mentioned, you know, going to Howard and walking the halls that Toni Morrison walked. When did you first come into contact with her work? I'm assuming it's before you went to Howard and which which work particularly, you know, captured your imagination? Oh, yeah. Well, I would say for sure my favorite book by Toni Morrison is Jazz. And I think it's a mix of the beauty of the Harlem Renaissance, um, 
this the explicit love affair that is happening in the story um, and just the idea of how she captures the great migration. So you follow the characters. Um, they're young and they're in love and they're hopeful and they come to Harlem searching for a new life and they're hit with the reality of oppression. They suddenly have to cope with all these different ideas of um a life that could be possible within the harsh realities of what is not possible. And I don't think I realized, I had glorified and looked at the Harlem Renaissance in so many different ways, but once I read that book, I understood like that there was something beyond the Cotton Club and Duke Ellington and the, the dancing that everyone kind of like sits with, but just like the, the hope of everyday people. There's also, the, the I love the fact that the narrator, like you never know who that person is and she's like this voice over everything and it's, it has a little bit of a um, mysterious quality. Like she's almost gossiping with you and telling you a story, like whispering in your ear and then that happened and this happened and, you know, Tate did this and, you know, like I, I just love that quality of it. Um and I, I would definitely say that's one of my favorite books from by Toni Morrison. And I encountered that pretty early on. I probably read that when I was in high school. Um, and but when I read it the first time, I don't I don't think I had a full comprehension of it. It wasn't until I read it again, probably when I was, you know, sophomore, junior in college, I was reading it for an African-American lit class where we really went through to analyze the, the prose of it and the voice. And there's also a sharp... Um, look at just black womanhood in that story too. So you have Violet who's um, looking at everything and like, you know, having her interpretation and you have um, the narrator who in my mind is a woman who's telling the story. It's the story of like resilience and how one can survive, you know, horrendous experiences, but also find love and hope too. Yeah, I, I just, it's one of my favorite books. And then there's The Bluest Eye, mm-hmm. where, you know, how can you not fall in love with that story where it's the, the, the longing of this poor girl who wants to have blue eyes, right? This, and that's just, again, identity. You want to see yourself. You want to be reflected. And most importantly, you want to be loved. Um, and, and that was another book that I read first, did not fully understand, had to read again. Um, and when I read it the second time, it really hit me, the power of it. Talking about seeing ourselves um, in literature for the first time, this is really the theme of your book. Yes, yeah. And so when you decided to pull all these beautiful authors together, um, is that kind of the man that you had when you asked them to be a part of it? Oh yeah, yeah. My my only goal was for the contributors to tell the truth, mm. whatever their truth was. They should share it. They should be transparent, and they should really just open up their heart to the reader and tell a story—a story that they would love and, or maybe even hate. Just like a story that allowed them to, to that is true. You know, I love the Sojourner Truth quote: um, "Truth is powerful and it prevails." And we need more truth. We need to share like the examples um, of things that are painful, things that are like, heartfelt. Um, and I wanted to just pose that question. He's like, when did you first see yourself? And for some people, that was when they read a James Baldwin book. Or, you know, for one contributor, she talked about um, Roald Dahl. 
you know, how she yeah. saw herself in, in the, you know, in his work. Um, so it varies. But then there's some common voices that always come up over and over again. There's Toni Morrison. There's Maya Angelou. Um, there's Paul Marshall. And I, th- I think those voices have the ability to really change your perspective on yourself. And I also noticed that, like myself, a lot of the contributors contributors reread titles at different phases of their yes. life, you know? So Lynn Nottage tells the story of how she read Alice Walker, The Color of Purple, and the first time she read it, she wasn't a mother. And so she had a completely different perspective of, of what that was, you know, what that relationship, that motherly um, bond and then when she read it again as a mother, it was completely different for, for her that time. Um, and I, I find that within myself too, like reading books at different phases of my life is so crucial to my own growth. And it also allows me to see how I've changed and how my perspectives have grown over time um, and how my empathy has grown too. Things that I might've like balked at when I was a teen or thought like, oh, that's ridiculous, you know, felt different in my thirties. So. Yeah, the, the contributors really had the ability to to like sit down with you and help like make you think about that. Like one of my favorite stories was from Rebecca Walker, um, whose mother is Alice Walker. And she talks about the first time she wrote an essay in school and how that essay really became the catalyst for her career. She had had experience where she was out um, and she witnessed domestic violence. She saw someone being beaten by their partner and she tried to you know stop it she tried to interject and say you know protect this woman and quite simply the woman didn't want to be protected so what what yeah, is she that? said i love right i love him i love him she defends her it's, partner it's so who is you know it's complicated and as a young high school person how do you reconcile with that what she did was pick up a pen write a story tell tell her own truth and that became a huger discussion in her high school and ended up being an essay that they like started to look at what domestic violence means and how it can um, you know, impact a community. So from that experience, it led her to writing this essay, led to the, this huge conversation about domestic violence. And, you know, she's one of the strongest voices when it comes to feminism in the world, right? So that was like her beginning. Um, and I think that's my favorite part of the collection is so many of the stories are the origin stories of how these women came into writing, how they came into their craft and became the strong voices they are today. Tell me if I'm, because there are just so many incredible quotes and situations that happen in the book, but I think it's Tiari. Oh, yes. Who, what struck me was that moment, I think she talks about um, with Tar Baby, where yes. she's reading it and it was the first time she got really angry. Yes. Remember that time you got angry at a book because what you wanted to happen or right. what you thought should happen didn't. Right. And I feel like there was a th- there's a thread throughout these women's stories at the frustration right. either of reading stories that you wish weren't true or, but also of then thinking I can take up a pen and I can write the type of story I want to write or I can rewrite that story. Um, And that impulse kind of flows through this book. I I think you're exactly right in terms of the stories. Like Tiari's story just 
it left me winded because at one point she's like, I'm mad at Toni Morrison. She's like, how dare she curate this character that, you know, doesn't do as, as I want her to do. Right. So there is this moment where you're confronted. Um, you want to talk back to the author. You want to be a little sassy and say, Hey, like, why isn't this happening? Why isn't it happening my way? Um, and, I, I'm trying to think of a moment that I was like really frustrated with an author or I thought, you know, the ending could be needed to be different. Let me think. I Well, I was just thinking when I read Americana. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I loved that book so much. And I, I thought the ending was the right ending. Right. But, you know, sometimes we have an impulse to want a happier ending right. or, or a different ending. Um that book is just so beautifully complicated. Well, I th- I think what happens is they're like real reflections of life. So life is a complicated. You don't always get the ending you want. But when you're reading a book, you want it to feel resolved and closed. And you want to like, you know, cl- finish the book and feel satisfied with the um, with the characters and with the ending. And Tar Baby is a good example of that. She doesn't, she helps you realize that, you uh, Life isn't as easy as it may seem. And there are, you know, people that are going to enter your life and love you. And they might not be the people that you need to love leave, love you. And you might need to leave them to be a better, stronger person. Um, yeah. That I, I don't, I can't like really think of a story right now that d- did that for me. I, and I'm also the type of reader that um, I, I'm just, I kind of like, I'm satisfied with however the author decides to close the story. I'm just kind of like, okay, like this is the end. This is how the end should be. Um, I don't think I would ever like snap back at Toni Morrison. No, I know. (laughs) Me neither. Chimamanda. I don't know. I think she's so brilliant. Yeah. I'm like, I'm kind of like resolved with that. I would say, um, hmm, actually I take that back. Maybe with Zora Neale Hurston, you know, there's there's some points where I want more. Not necessarily like I'm angry with the, the conclusion, but I want more. I've I've been left with stories where with um, their eyes were watching God. I would I just was like longing for for more. Like I wanted to know what happened after, um, and that's happened where I'm like I have more of a yearning um, to like know the next scene or to figure out what their next life would be like. That happens more often than not. Before you mentioned Lynn Nottage. Oh, yes. Um, Okay, so, wow. Some of these stories I noticed you got to interview these women in person and Mm -hmm. she's one of them. What was that like? Was it in person? Yeah. Yeah. It was, without question, just magical. She has such a warm presence and she's a very uh, just generous spirit. She told me so much about her life, her parents, um, what she did before she became a playwright. Um, Quite honestly, like what she was afraid of and how she overcame that fear. And that was just really encouraging to see that, you know, she at one point she did doubt herself and she had to like really sit and consider what she wanted and make a plan. So, um, and she's done so many different things with her career. You know, she was a human rights activist and um, worked with several organizations before she decided that, you know what, my true calling is artistry and I want to become a playwright. 
And she studied under phenomenal people. August Wilson is one, you know, a person that she can call a mentor. Um, she talks about her how her parents were nexus people, which I just love that term, how they really immersed themselves in arts and culture and wanted to um, cultivate that for her. She also shared that Paul Marshall was her godmother, which I just thought was so phenomenal and how she wanted to be like her when she grew up, you know, um, to be in such close proximity to the, like, so many wonderful artists and a, such a beautiful, loving family. I can see how she is the woman she is today. And I can also see how tender she is with mentoring other young women and making sure that they get um, what they need to grow their craft. Like she just, she named so many different playwrights that I should be reading and who I should be following. And I just like sat there and soaked it all up. It felt like I was in a dream, you know, just to be so close with her. And I've, I've watched all her plays. Most recently I saw Sweat on Broadway. Um, and I'm always just like left breathless, like with her, just her presence and her work, you know, she she's amazing, completely amazing. Well, I love how in her piece, she talks about that moment of, I think whether she was at Yale then or not, you can correct me, but the AIDS crisis is happening yeah. and she has all these incredible friends and, you know, people in her family right. that, and friends of friends who are dying. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be, I think there's a quote where she says, you know, how could I write plays when right. there's such important work to do when people are dying around right. me? And that was the catalyst for her to go into her human rights work. But then it's hard to imagine, it's so interesting, the writer's journey, isn't it? Like she had to do that or or she didn't have to do anything, but that was those years she spent must have utterly informed how then she came back to the writing. Right, right. I mean, I think there is something so radical and provocative about being able to um, find your artistry in the world to really like look at what's happening in society and make a decision to speak out about it and make a stance. Um, with with Lynn, she has such a rich life that, in terms of just like you know, the people she's worked with, the um, the things that she's just done, that her ability to step away from, you know, her work um, and then come back to playwriting that I think it was hard for her. I think like, because it could, it's easy to say that, oh, what I'm doing is frivolous. It's not as important. Um, But in reality, it is. It has such power and weight to to write a play that can change the world, to, you know, create a, a painting or write a book that will like leave an imprint. Um, but I think that's also part of like the the artist journey and the insecurity that you face and that like that self doubt that you have to overcome to say that like my voice matters and the work matters and it's not about um, like doing it to impress anyone else or doing it to you know make others proud. It's really just about like being dedicated to the work, like doing the work. And I think throughout our interview that became very apparent that she sits down and does the work and goes out of her way to make sure that pe- that it's accessible and it's reflecting of the people um, that look like her, you know? So at the time when she was first, you know, 
writing these plays, Broadway, uh, and you know, quite honestly, it still is, was primarily white and male driven. And she tells a story about her first play that was, she had an all male cast. And, you know, she, she was like, why did I do that? Why did I write this play with all men? Why did I write my own self, my own story out? That is what she thought she had to do in order to be a playwright. So she had to unlearn that and process what, like why she even had these misconceptions. And she was very vulnerable about that experience and talked about, like, you know, I had to go through these things and write these stories before I felt, like, super comfortable. And the moment she saw... Um, for color girls was such a like a, a life changing experience for her. She was, you know, she was able to visualize and see that the stories of black women belonged on stage and they had a presence there. Um, and and I, I mean, I just was so floored by it because that's exactly what happens with so many of the women in the book. They pick up, they see themselves, and they don't even know that they're perhaps missing that until they see it. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes you don't even know that like that's what you're yearning for until you actually see it in front of you. And you're like, oh, that's the thing. That's the thing that I need. Um, and that's incredible. That's a really like satisfying feeling. There also seems to be a theme throughout the women's work of this idea of um, tempering down mm. or, um, uh, you know, like refined writing, anger at a remove is kind of more accepted by the literary establishment. But when a woman, a black woman is there being like letting her mm. rage be raw and right. real, that for a lot of women it took it, it's a journey to right. get to that truth. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the the primary theme in the collection is really about identity and being grounded in your identity and not questioning yourself, not looking out to society for validation or um, or just like any type of um, affirmation. The reality is, you need to have that validation validation for yourself. You need to be able to say that, like, I can do this. And black women have always been able to look at one another and support each other. This idea of sisterhood has existed um, from the very, very beginning, that we can confidently support one another, uplift one another, affirm one another, and also uh inquire like what do you need how do you need help um and i i just i mean i love that i love that the women in the collection from you know barbara smith to lynn nottage to jacqueline woodson they are telling the reader like what do you need like how do, how can i help you the words feel like such a um affirmation but also a call to action to like pick up this book and now go write your own story and I want that. I wanted to write something where people could feel see themselves and beyond that, really analyze like who they are in the world and what they want to leave. Like what is their lasting legacy? Um, so many of the stories also start off with uh, doubt. You know, Cindy Clemens starts her story about, um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but she, like wanting to be a writer and then getting to the point of being a writer, <laughs> like that big gap in between where you're searching and you're looking for um, just anything to hold on to, it's hard and it can leave you afloat. But if you can like read this collection or read a quote from an author that you 
respect that provides you with inspiration. I think that like it does a lot. It does a lot for your self-esteem, for your heart. You know, I really believe in like heart talk and self-talk that is positive and affirming. And you have to like talk to yourself like I can do it. I believe in myself um, because no one else is going to do that for you. And but you can have supporters along the way to cheerlead and encourage you. But you have to have that like that self-confidence to really make whatever your dream is a reality. Well, it makes me think a lot about the books we find when we're young that are a balm to loneliness, to isolation. Um, and I think in the in your opening, you talk about get coming to Maya Angelou's. Yeah, I um, love her. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I know why the caged bird sings. And again, how you read it at two different times in your life. But I think the first time was at 12. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty young. <laughs> I was really young when I read that book. I mean, prior to that, I had read a lot of um, I had read a lot of like Babysitter's Club and like Sweet Valley High and Judy Bloom. Um what else? Oh, Little Women. I loved Little Women growing up. You know, I felt like Joe March. I thought that like that was like my voice. Um, but it wasn't until I read Maya Angelou that I was like, oh, this is different. And I I, I really loved the her voice. And when I say voice, just like how she wrote, like it really, um, it had like a sassiness to it, but also just like felt like someone was just talking to you, you know, it didn't have this level of, um, what is that? It didn't feel like condescending. Do you know what I mean? Like I picked it up and I felt like I, even though I was 12 and I did not understand it, I felt like I did. I was like, oh, this sounds familiar. It sounds like, like, sounds like how my mom talks to me or how, you know, how uh, friends are just talking. It just sounds like we're in conversation. And I think that is what I'm most drawn to when I'm reading. I really love dialogue and I love things that f- just sound like really authentic and pure and in the voice like of everyday people. Um, another book that I absolutely love is um, Drinking Coffee Elsewhere. It's easy packer. Just like it's the, the perfect short story collection and the dialogue of it is just like just sharp and witty and fun. And again, it sounds like someone is just like talking to you and telling you a story. Like you, someone just sat down on the bus and said, and this happened and this happened and then this happened. You know, I love that kind of flow where it just feels like effortless and really, but it's not like you can tell like there's like such craft to it and there's a precision that's happening. Um, but, but yeah, I think that's what really like stuck out to me when I first read My Angela. I was like, I just love her voice, you know, but I didn't know that that's what, when I was 12, but I didn't know that that's what I was like drawn to. But you know, as an adult, I'm like, I, that's what I like when I'm reading. I'm drawn to dialogue. I was just, something you said earlier made me think of Jasmine Ward mm, and yeah. her beautiful, you know, essay in the book. And Imagining her reading like oh, yeah. of Green Gables and all oh, these yeah. stories and this idea that, you know, she loved them. But when the when she finished those books, where how could she relive those worlds right. when the book ended? Because she was like, I didn't look like those girls. Yeah. Um, and I guess this whole collection is reimagining, you know, all these women have committed themselves to 
writing the stories they wish they'd had. Yeah, completely. They are writing themselves into the canon. Mm. They are writing for their younger selves. They're all beautiful love stories to their daughters, to future generations. So there isn't a, a sense of like lack anymore. There isn't a sense of longing. You can now read Jasmine Ward and know that uh, her story is your story. And I think that is just phenomenal. Um, within her story, I also love, there's a sense of magic, you know, throughout Jasmine's story. She's talking about witches and um, just like the rambunctiousness and curiosity of young girls, which I really, uh, I adored. And, and she also talks about... Um, just, you know, social economic class, you know, in in the book that she refer she refers to this idea that um that the, one of the young characters is hungry and she can recall that same feeling of hunger and like, you know, not always having enough to eat or never having um you know, the same means as other people in her classroom, you know? So she talks about that too, which I think is just like great because there's not a lot of stories that say, that make it okay to, you know, maybe you faced poverty before and, or maybe you didn't have enough when you were younger. younger. Um, she does it in a way where there's no shame involved and it's just like honest and really pure. And I think we need those stories too, that it's not always perfect when you're growing up and you can... Um, experience these things and overcome them. And you can also have like a sense of pride and it can be written in a way that's like dignifying, you know, like she's not, she's never, um, you know, talking down or like looking down on that experience. It's just like, it is what it is. It's like the part of her life. Um, and I think that's affirming to someone who might be encountering the same things or might, you know, grew up the same way, uh, looking at just like, all the different ways that one can come into their greatness. Jasmine Ward now is a MacArthur Genius Award recipient. She's won two National Book Awards. And at one point in her life, she, you know, she experienced hunger and she was like living in poverty, um, but she was able to overcome that as well, you know? I think that evolution of when, you know, when women, people think that they can become a writer or that that, yeah. that shift is really interesting. I'm wondering for you, because when you came in, mm -hmm. you would, you know, you um, worked at Kickstarter. Yeah, and I did. Yeah. Was that at the same time as having this idea? I mean, let's talk about the fact that Well Read Black Girls started as a, like a text among <laughs> some friends. Yeah. Yeah. And it almost just shows me like the power of one woman, mm. like what one woman can do <laughs> to create this, this catalytic like change and I mean this I, where I'm kind of jumping all over the place but now that you are a writer yourself mm -hmm. um, when did that shift start to happen and when did you really work out what you wanted to say beyond um, just the book club mm. You know, every great dream de des definitely begins with you know dreaming big and being um, just a little audacious. And I don't think I started off this dream thinking it would ever happen this way. The fact that I have an anthology and this, you know, warm, beautiful community supporting and uplifting me, I could not have 
ever dreamed this. <laughs> it's happened, you know, quite organically and with the support of many wonderful friends, like new and old. Um, but in the very, very beginning, if I was to look at my origin story and be really honest, it was um, pretty accidental. You know, the shirt happened and the conversation started to happen. Um, and because my like background is in strategy and marketing, I, I constantly, I am that one, I am a person like full of ideas. I always have a lot of ideas and I want to share them. And um, sometimes I'm like giving them away. Like if you do this, this could be really great. And if you add this and this, like this is how this will pan out. Like I share that with my family and my friends a lot. Um, and in this case, it actually took my partner OPO encouraging me a little bit. Like you should do this. You know, the, it, that would be a really good idea. Um, so when I sat down and hosted my first book club, I think what made it happen, that really, really made it happen was that first book club with uh, Naomi Jackson. So I walked into the Greenlight bookstore. Naomi was doing a book signing. I had just read her book and I told her we were doing the book club. Naomi said yes. I said, will you come? She said yes. Had she said no, I do not, I don't know if the direction of the book club and everything that has happened since would have been the same. It was the moment she walked into the room and we had that conversation. It took it to, you know, another level. So, you know, the women and I were having these conversations and we're talking about the book, but to have Naomi in the room reading from her book and telling her own coming of age story and allowing us to ask her questions about her creative process, you know, how she got published, something changed. Like that was like when I was like, okay, like this feels like this could be different. Like this could be actually um, a model for me to like continue to grow and pull. And then Naomi introduced me to Angela Flournoy. She was our second book. At the time she had like just written The Turner House, which is one of my favorite books. Like. I, I love, love, love that book. Um, and then she she had, you know, at the time she was like a finalist for the National Book Award, right? So, so both women had their first debut, debut books. They were part of the book club. At that time, maybe 10 women were in the room. I had just started doing the Instagram. I had just started doing the newsletter. I was figuring it out. Um, and, you know, each person, so Angela from that, you know, she recommended people and we, you know, developed our own relationship and started talking. So each time I worked with an author, a new idea came to mind and I figured out like, okay, so this worked really well, but this didn't. This, like, this is what the space is. I was constantly like working and iterating and trying to figure out how to make the experience as lively and um like affirming and special as possible. So it was just like putting pieces together each time, each time. Like I was like putting together a puzzle. And quite honestly, I still am, you know, like I'm still figuring it out as I go along and trying to grow into my role and be um, you know, just like really open and transparent with my experience because it is challenging at times, you know, going from doing a book club to actually editing a book is a huge leap and it wasn't something that I expected but I'm one to see opportunity and want to like run with it and see how I can make it the best opportunity possible <laughs> that's just like my <laughs> just like my personality and who I am I want to like really create 
amazing experiences for other people. Like I want people to feel the way I feel. Like if I'm enthusiastic, I hope you feel that as well. Like if I open a book and I cry at this passage, maybe like you might, something might trigger in you and you might feel that same thing too. That is what I really find that is most special about the book club and the experiences that we're having, you know, like we're talking, we're connecting with one another and the book just becomes like a catalyst for other conversations. Um, yeah, it's also so. like this example of women, you know, it's the domino. It's like one yeah. says yes, the next says yes. And that community is why yeah. we, that's like why we're alive. Right, right exactly. Yeah, it's for us to connect with one another and um, j- just like find ways for us to uplift each other. I really do believe that the mission of Well-Read Black Girl is to amplify the voices of Black women and allow their stories to be heard. And most importantly, allow their books to be read widely and to be purchased, right? So there's a level of um, economic empowerment that is also driven within our mission. I want people to buy these books. So when you buy the book, the author can have an opportunity to write another book and she can be on the New York best, you know, New York Times bestseller list. And, you know, like it's it's all a continuum. Like we're all supporting each other and we all have a role to play. And I also say support independent bookstores, go to your local library, um, write reviews on Goodreads, like do all the things you need to do however you can to help uplift their voices and make sure that they're being supported all the way, all the way through. There's a life cycle that happens within the book club where, you know, one of the first books we read was Here Comes the Sun by Nicole Dennis-Ben. She's now working on her second book. And I want the community to be there supporting her when she debuts Patsy. Like there's so many things that, you know, it's not just a one-time thing. Like once a author is part of the book club she now she's becomes you know part of the family we're going to continue to support her books and her the whole life of her work and her body of work in a powerful way it's um I think that's really special I think it's really special and I again when I was saying like how everything started I didn't know that was going to be the outcome (laughs) I did not realize that was going to be the outcome of it um but that that's where I am now and I look uh at just how I'm just looking at how I can like grow like I really want um this to continue to just like live within publishing, but see other avenues as well. Like I'm, I'm very curious about film. I'm like very curious about just like documentaries. And I think, you know, part of my mission also is in um, archival recovery. Like, you know, Instagram is a place where I like have these beautiful photos of authors and the quotes that serve as affirmations, but I, I want you not to forget who Rosa Guy is. You know what I mean? Like she wrote The Friends years ago, but that work is pretty pivotal. It's it's such a like legendary story that I don't want you to forget who that person is. I want you to remember the voices that might be forgotten that are sitting in the archive. You know, we read Kathleen Collins, who is phenomenal. You know, people know her for her legendary film work, um, her film Losing Ground, but she was also a phenomenal writer. I was able to talk to her daughter, Nina Collins, and when she was, when her daughter was able to republish her book, we read it. The story, um, the short story collection is called Whatever Happened to Interracial Love. 
it's a beautiful, beautiful collection. Um, I don't want people to forget her. I don't want people to forget all these stories that might have been overlooked years ago. So it's about looking at emerging writers and helping them establish their careers, but also looking at the history and giving um Giving credit to the literary foremothers, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, Gloria Naylor, Toni Cade Bambara. There are names on top of names that need to be recognized and just given the accolades they deserve. Um, And I think what's great about social media, it allows people to uh, just explore and dig deeper. So perhaps if you like it on Instagram, you will be driven to go to your local a bookstore or library and check out that book, right? Um, I've worked with women like Marita Golden. When I, the first memoir that I read that I like, um, that I really, again, like saw myself in was um, Migrations of the Heart. I, if you have not read that book, it is a must. It is beautifully written. And she is um, another one of these like phenomenal, bold writers that, is part of like the literary canon of African American women that should be like uplifted. Marita Golden is phenomenal, you know, um, and she's also in this collection. I was so honored that she said yes. Like so many people said yes to my invitation to be in this book, and each time I got another yes, I was just like floored and filled with such gratitude because um, I realized no one has to do anything, right? Like simply because I'm doing this doesn't mean that people have to. To accept it and embrace it and carry it as their own um, their own, own banner. But people have done that. They've like taken the name Well-Read Black Girl and they've made it their own. You know, they've taken the name Well-Read Black Girl and they've made it their own. That feels, I, I'm just so thankful for it. And I have like such gratitude for you know, every follower, every book club member, people that like introduce themselves to me on the street and say like how it's changed their lives because they've just been um, reminded that their words have power. I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that. And I'm like looking forward to how, what the next iteration looks like, you know, now, I mean, I'm working on the festival and I'm working on um, more literary salons and more opportunities for people can come to come in contact with the writers and have a connection. Like I, my main, um, when I'm like planning things, I'm thinking about like how to bring people together. I'm really thinking about connecting readers with writers. How am I making that connection? How am I establishing that? And how 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 am I making it the most authentic and real as possible? You know, I have a I have like a group text with some of like my publishing friends, and I'm constantly being like, okay, asterisk, like real talk, like what does this really mean? Like I don't like I want because I'm I don't come from publishing, you know, I didn't I don't have an MFA, like I don't like I didn't. My ba- my background is not in publishing, so sometimes I just don't know what cert- what the etiquette is or what certain things. I think things that's mean. great though, because not knowing the etiquette means that you bypass. I just do channels. You just do <laughs> right. you. I just do things, and and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But I never have a fear of asking, and I never like I'm just like okay, like how can this work? How can you know? And I, I'm grateful for it because I, I don't feel like restricted by anything. I like to test things out. And I'm just like, okay, like this can work and this can't. Um, yeah. And I also think so much of what I'm doing too is just like has been done before. There's so many wonderful 
book clubs that exist in the world. Like I love like the go on girl book club that's been happening like for ages, you know? And then of course the book club of all book clubs, Oprah's book club, you know, I absolutely, like, I love her, you know? Um, and I just want to pay tribute to the like women who have come before me and have been doing this extraordinary work. Like I think I'm just an extension of that. And this is, I think so much of the work that I'm doing is about collaboration. However, I can collaborate and work with other book clubs that already exist and how we can uplift each other. Like I'm all for that. You know, I'm really excited for that to happen. Well, I think too, it's important, like well-worn black girl, it's for black women. But what you've done is put together this book that everyone can read and enjoy and like absorb these these stories and these women into yeah. their canon when and I really respect not that you need or want my respect but the um I'm like this is yours and this is black women's and yeah it's I just think it's interesting like I wonder if there's a, a people are ever like I want to be in it too and it's like you know what this is our thing. I, I do get inquiries from people that want to join who are not black and they have, whether it's men or white women or, you know, who are curious and want to support. Um, and I'm very clear that the space is centered on black women. This is a space that we are here to be, um, to focus on our work and have just a really pure, a pure space yeah. because once you introduce new people into the room, the dynamics change and voices can sometimes dominate, you know, like when sometimes men talk over women, it's a reality, it happens. But when you have a room full of black women and the rules are very clear and we have our community guidelines of this is how we treat one another, this is how we share our stories. Um, and we're going to be just thoughtful and just mindful of how we're interacting with one another it's it's needed and there are not a lot of spaces that we can do it. Yeah. So even with the festival, I'm very clear that this is uh, a festival that um, is female identifying and allows for black women to come and work, look at each other and work together. Not to say that allies can't come to the festival. I'm not saying that at all, but please know once you walk into the room, the focus is going to be on black women. Or maybe you should just listen. Yes, completely. Like, a lot of, I think, what I am learning and trying to educate myself on, I don't know if that's the right English, but is is listening and is just to sit back and listen to other people's experiences and you don't need to insert your feelings or thoughts about certain things. Right. I think there's also um, what you get, once you walk into the room, whether you're coming to the book club or coming or attending the festival, you have an opportunity to listen and you're really at the feet of wonderful storytellers and visionaries and educators. And you can take that information and you can be able to apply it to your own life and you can be able to like help other people, you know, reach their potential. You can really be able to empathize more. And say, like, how can I help? How can I help in a way that's like honest and authentic? And you can also examine your own privilege in the situation too. And I think that's the thing that people need to be mindful of when they say they want to help 
what is your privilege in the situation and what are you doing that will be most beneficial? Because coming in and taking up space is not the way to do it. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. People have good intentions, but they come in and they're really messy and they like... They can change the dynamics really easily if they're not mindful. So I really encourage people to be thoughtful, to be mindful of how they're entering spaces and to look um, to look for opportunities to listen more than um, dominate, you know, this, the environment or the space of any situation, you know. Because we could talk forever, but <laughs> we got to wrap up. Can you tell us a bit about the festival? So the festival this year is happening at Pioneer Works in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Um, it's a beautiful cultural institution. Um, we're going to have a beautiful lineup of authors, several authors that are in the collection, including Jacqueline Woodson, uh, Renee Watson, um, uh, who else is going to be there? So many wonderful voices are going to be part of that. Mahogany Brown, an extraordinary poet. I just am so excited. I think this year is going to be even more, uh, even more beautiful and community driven and just like full of sisterhood. There's going to be so many great things. I mean, I'm excited for it to come to fruition. And I actually am a little still in shock that it's happening. Like the first year happened so rapidly. We have the Kickstarter and we raised money. And this year we, we're going with a different approach. And um, we're going to be working with a lot of like young people to, to get the word out and inviting more educators and um, students to come. But overall, I think like it's going to be exciting because it's also going to be like the launch of the book and the anthology. It's going to be there too. And it's like later in the fall um, compared to last year, we had it earlier in September. So it's going to be good. I'm like, I'm kind of stumbling over my words because I'm just excited, but <laughs> but it's going to be really exciting for everyone to come together this year and it's going to happen again. And I look forward to it growing every year just to continue to be uh, a staple to the literary community at the festival. Well, best of luck. Thank you. And again, I just, the book is so precious. Oh my gosh, thank and you. And it's such a resource. Like if you, it has these fabulous lists inside. Yeah, yeah. That I feel are really important. I feel like as someone who wants to, you know, read more um, black female poets. Oh yeah. It, there's, it's just this incredible, it's, you need it on your shelf because you can kind of, take it off, read an essay and then go, oh, I'm going to go and buy these five books and kind of completely immerse yourself in exactly. a, like a genre. All the like well-read black girl reading recommendations, they vary from playwrights to poets to science fiction, books on black feminism. It really becomes this resource for you to find whatever you need in, in the you know, black literary canon. There's so many phenomenal writers that I've listed. And we've also shared every single suggestion that the contributors have offered in a huge list in the back too. So it's a great resource for um, anyone reading this book. They can have like a full list of like, like stories at hand and all the stories really have... Um, just a powerful focus on black womanhood from all over the diaspora. I think that's really important too. So like all these like varied voices um, from all over the country, like feels like, like something we need to constantly remind ourselves of like blackness is not a monolithic and there's so many different you know, viewpoints and um, 
just like different energies that exist that we need to acknowledge and really pay tribute to. So I'm, I'm really excited for people to pick up the collection and read it um, and, you know, tell me. I, I love to talk to people on Instagram and Twitter. So tweet me suggestions. If I missed a book, like let me know, you know, share it on Instagram, tag it Well Read Black Girl. Tell me all the books that are on your bookshelf as well, because this is just, this is just my bookshelf, but I want to know more and more suggestions of the things I should read and um, how we can continue to grow the community. Thank you so much, Gloria. Yeah, thank you. Thank this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you loved it as much as I did. The big takeaway I got from this was how inspiring Glory is, just how she amplifies women's voices that she believes in. Um, So I'm going to try and do that more. And in that vein, I'd love to know who you would like to hear from. So contact me at at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram and let's get the back and forth going. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.